All right, Mark chapter 8. So we're going to be halfway through this book after tonight. And this one's going by a lot faster than Genesis. Seems like we're, this year's flying so far. But Mark chapter 8, I'm just going to go ahead and admit it right from the start. There's a few things I don't completely get in this chapter. And I'm just going to be honest. And with a couple of these things, I'm going to say I don't really know. And I'll just give you a couple of my guesses on these things. But I say this too because I, while I've been trying to figure out for sure what some of this stuff means, while I can't, I haven't necessarily figured it out yet. I do think it's one of those things that probably can be figured out. I just, I feel like I'm missing something. I got, I got to find the missing piece somewhere and I'm hoping I get it before I'm done with this book. Cause the more I, the more we go through this book, the more and more I'm understanding certain things that can often be a little bit difficult, but we'll, uh, I'll share these things as we go through this, but let's go ahead and start reading in verse one. It says in those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way, for divers of them came from far. And his disciples answered him, from whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? Now, here's something that I don't get. And that is, how in the world were these disciples even wondering, or, why would, or what would even make them ask this question? Because do we not remember just a couple chapters before when there were 5,000 in the wilderness, and all they had was five loaves and two fish, and then what did Jesus do? He multiplied those, and he fed the entire multitude. And so here they are in the same situation again, except 4,000 people. And what did they say? From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? You know, it's like they're asking, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Aren't these the guys that supposedly believed that God fed their fathers manna in the wilderness? These are the guys who literally were the ones who handed out the bread and the fish to everybody last time. And here they are with Jesus again. And Jesus, he's having compassion on the multitude. And notice, too, that this is even though he didn't even really want these people following him. He was trying to get away from people. We've seen that in the previous chapters. But people just kept coming to Jesus. They just kept coming to Jesus. And so here they are in a dangerous situation. Jesus didn't try to get them in that dangerous situation. We talked about that last week. Jesus wasn't one of these, you know, name it, claim it prophecy guys that wanted to just put on a show and, you know, hey, everybody come and see a miracle. No, this was just something that happened and a miracle was needed. And of course, Jesus was able to perform that miracle. But I'm telling you right now, when you see the lack of faith with the disciples, I don't get it. I mean, it really is astonishing. And look what it says in Mark chapter six. In Mark chapter six, just two chapters before, in verse 51, it says, and he went up unto them into the ship. This is after he's walking in the water and the wind ceased and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered for they considered not the miracle of the loaves for their heart was hardened. So the disciples, after they've seen Jesus multiply loaves and feed a multitude, they see him walking on the water. And you know, at this point, they shouldn't be surprised by anything that Jesus does. But yet they're constantly surprised by the things that Jesus does. And then, and the Bible says it's because their hearts were still hardened. When they see Jesus walking in the water, they didn't stop and just say, well, you know what? Do we all remember what he just did with those loaves and fish? 
This should be easy. But they, their hearts were hardened. Now, here's what I don't understand. What does that mean when it says, you know, their hearts were hardened? You know, how, how were a bunch of guys whose hearts were hardened, you know, and didn't have hardly any faith, you know, how were they even saved? I mean, think, and especially used of God. You ever wonder that when I'm reading this, like, well, how did you use any of these guys? You know, everybody wants to argue about whether or not Judas had any converts or not. I wonder how any of these guys got converts. When you see just the lack of faith that they had. I mean, how in the world did they, what made them even go preaching the gospel to people? When these guys' hearts are so hardened, after all the things they see, they're still with Jesus out in the wilderness, and they're thinking nothing can be done. It, I mean, it just it's amazing. Israel is, was just always known for just never remembering the previous miracles. They are no different than their fathers that saw the ten plagues, that saw the Red Sea parted, that were fed man in the wilderness, and still continue to complain. These guys are no different. They're the children, and I am, I'm just amazed that God used any of these guys. And it ought to give hope for all of us. Maybe that's why God used it. Maybe God went and picked 12 guys, so I'm just going to pick the sorriest guys that there are so I can give hope to Christians everywhere. Because we do see by the time we get to the book of Acts, these were some pretty incredible guys. But during the Gospels, they weren't very impressive. It, it's, it was pretty sad how bad they were. The lack of faith that we're seeing here, I mean, it does. It seems like it's on the same level as the children of Israel whining in the wilderness. How are these guys even saved? And so when you consider the amount of miracles that these guys have seen and the fact that Jesus had performed the very miracle needed at this time, it just shows these guys had hard hearts. And folks, a hard heart is not a good thing. You're not going to get anywhere in your Christian life. You're never going to grow spiritually if you have a hardened heart. You've got to have faith. You're never going to get saved if you have a hardened heart. You've got to have faith in order to be saved. And so in verse 5, it says, And he asked them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven. So they're doing better. There's a thousand less people than last time, and they've got two loaves more. These guys should be like, This is going to be a piece of cake. <laughs> but no. From whence can a man satisfy these with bread? That's a, that was a horrible question. That was a horrible question for them to ask. They, they ought to be ashamed. And you know, we're the same way though sometimes too. We're the same way. We don't, you know, we, we like to act like, well, if I'd have been there, I'd been like, this is going to be easy. He did a thousand more with two less loaves last time. And they got a few fishes. One more fish too. This, this is going to be easy. But no, we'd have probably been just like him. So it says he commanded the people to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks and break and gave to his disciples to set before them and they did set them before the people and they had a few small fishes and he blessed and commanded to set them also before them. So they did eat and were filled and they took up the broken meat that was left seven baskets and they that had eaten were about 4,000 and he sent them away. And so this time they don't have 12 baskets full, they've got seven. Okay. Now you say, Pastor Tommy, what does that mean? I have no idea, but numerology people always come up with weird theories on that. I don't know. Okay. I, I don't know. And uh, you can go go watch a Ruckmanite video to figure that out, and hopefully that'll help your Christian walk. But I, I don't know. But anyway, but remember, this is what we need to remember about this miracle. Jesus tried to avoid this situation where a miracle was needed, but the people didn't listen to him. But the, but the Bible says he had compassion. 
Thankfully, even when we don't always listen to Christ and even though we don't always follow him, he is compassionate and he still feels sorry for us when we're in a bad situation. So that makes me feel good. It makes me feel good to know that Jesus doesn't like seeing people hungry. He doesn't like that at all. He did not want to send these people fasting. He didn't want them fainting in the way. One thing that Jesus does not like to see is his people hungry. And that ought to make all of us feel good. And I like what David said. I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor a seed begging bread. The Lord's going to take care of us. Now, you might be, you might be hungering when it comes to your uh, lust for those fancy cars and the bigger houses and the you know ultimate cable package and all those things that your soul lusts after. But food, I think we're all going to be doing fine. In America, we're doing pretty good on the food end. Some of the poorest people are some of the people who have the most overabundance of food in this country. And so we're, we're doing pretty good there. But anyway, the one thing we need to understand, though, is that also he doesn't like to see the people hungry, but Jesus doesn't mind putting us in a situation where we need faith. And that's another thing we ought to understand. You are going to find yourselves in situations where you need faith, or you need faith, but he doesn't want to see us faint. He doesn't want to see us faint. He'll, he'll give us power. He gives power to the faint. He'll help us out. So verse 10 says, and straightway he entered into the ship with his disciples and came into the parts of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. And he left them and entering into the ship again, he departed to the other side. So think about this. And I'm about to just trash some really bad theology that just irks the daylights out of me. But first off, before I do that, notice how Jesus is going from town to town, just doing miracle after miracle, just doing one amazing thing after another. But in this particular town that Jesus is purposely coming to, when greeted by a bunch of Pharisees who came to him demanding a sign, requiring a sign, not because they believed on him, but because they wanted to show. You know what Jesus did? He got back in the boat and said, let's go. He went somewhere else. This town missed out big time because of these Pharisees who came along tempting Christ. And here's what we've got to understand. Signs do not save people. Faith is what gets people saved. Signs do not save people. Can, can we all get this in our head right now? Signs don't save anybody. You know why Jesus would do miracles for these people that he did miracles for? Because they already believed. Because they believed. Then he would do miracles for them. These guys didn't believe, but they're like, show us a miracle. Isn't that what we all do? You know, that, that's kind of our attitude. Well, I'll prove it. Yeah, do something cool. And let me tell you, this, this attitude of demanding miracles and wanting miracles, it is a wicked attitude. It, this is a very wicked attitude. And in Matthew chapter 16, it says the Pharisees also with the Sadducees came and tempting him, tempting, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, what is evening? Ye say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and lowering. Oh, ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? 
A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas, and he left them and departed. You know what that sign of the prophet Jonas was? That was Jesus being three, dead for three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and resurrecting from the dead. That was the only sign Jesus gave them. And you know what? It didn't work. And, you know, just like that rich man told Abraham, you send Lazarus and he'll tell my brothers and they'll get saved. Abraham said, no, they won't. If they won't hear Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if one rose from the dead. You know why? Because signs don't get anybody saved. But yet we have this twisted, messed up dispensational theology that's out there of people who make the Bible into a magical book. They use, they use verses and phrases like magic words and incantations. And I don't know if you saw my video on proof texting. They use this method of proof texting to teach stupid stuff that basically you take a text of scripture and you ignore everything about it. You ignore context and you just make it fit your theology that you already have. And what do these people do? They want to teach how the Jews are all going to get saved when Jesus Christ comes back because they're not going to believe the gospel. You know why? Because the Jews require a sign. And that, isn't that what they say? The Jews require a sign. And so after the rapture comes, that's them going to be them getting their sign, and then they're all going to get start getting saved. Baloney. Baloney. That's, that is ridiculous. Where do they get that from? Uh, it, the Bible does say the Jews require a sign. But you know what? Let's see what happens when we don't isolate the text. It says in 1 Corinthians one twenty one, For after that, the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom, by wisdom, knew not God. The world didn't know God by wisdom. Right? It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign. There it is. And the Greeks seek after wisdom. So the wisdom, that was what the Greeks wanted to know God, but the world didn't know God by wisdom. And you know what? They didn't know God by signs either. You know how people get saved? Through preaching. The foolishness of preaching. Signs would make more sense, wouldn't it? Wisdom would make more sense, wouldn't it? Yes, to the carnal mind, but that's not what God chose. God chose the foolishness of preaching. And so Paul said, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And let me tell you something, folks. What we, one thing we see throughout the Bible is that signs don't work. Signs don't get people saved. Jesus said a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And every Baptist, every Christian who has ever said the Jews require a sign to teach that they're all going to get saved after they see some sign in the future, they should apologize for being ignorant and stupid. Because that is absolutely ridiculous to even think that. What do we see? It was tempting Christ when they came demanding a sign. We're going to see it's always wicked people demanding a sign. You want to know somebody who is really, really wicked too who demanded a sign? His name is Satan when he tempted Jesus. And what did he do? Make the stone into bread. Jump from the, this pinnacle of the temple and let the angels bury you. You know who demands a sign? The devil. The devil did that. It's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks after the sign. And you know what we have today? We've got Baptists many times, all right? And I know this is another religion. I don't feel like talking about other religions right now. But you've got a lot of Baptists that are out there today. You know what they're always doing? They're always looking for signs. We just need to pray the Lord 
just moves in and does something. We need the Lord to do something. Why? Why aren't you doing something? You know, our, our church is just dead as a door now. We need the Holy Ghost to move in and just stir things up. Just wait, you know, waiting for a sign. You know, if the, you know, maybe we'll get a mission program going and try to start winning people in our area. Lord gives us a sign. We actually have some soul winners show up. We don't run them off for being post-trib first. You know, <laughs> you know, maybe you know if a sign. You know, if our church would just get stirred up a little bit, meaning folks actually start showing up to church, start running around during the service, have some signs of revival in the church, and they're always wanting some kind of sign. Hey. How about you just read what the Bible says and then go do it? But everybody wants some kind of show. Everybody wants some kind of spectacle. You know, if we could just, if we, if we could just get one person to walk the altar, that's a sign to know we're not supposed to quit. Don't wait for them to walk the altar. Why don't you go walk? The Bible doesn't talk about the feet of them that get saved. It's talking about the feet of them that go out and spread the gospel. Those are, that's what we need to be looking for. That's what's supposed to be going on. But, you know, you, there's just a lot of lazy Christians out there. They don't want to do anything. They just want to show up to church, and they want to demand that God do a sign. No, how about you just believe his word and then just go do what he said? That's what you need to do. But this attitude of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it is alive and well in church today. And, frankly, it just it drives me nuts. I do, man. I, I can't tell you how many times I've been to these meetings, and you just... They, the meetings start out, they get all the preachers going up to the altar, everybody prays at the same time, and everybody just gets up and tries to have a contest, seeing who can pray the loudest, just begging for God's power. It's, it's annoying. And then, you know, maybe, maybe if they get a good enough singer, things will get stirred up a little bit. Folks will start running a few laps, and somebody will start, you know, grabbing the Christian flag and running around the auditorium with it, and then, <laughs> It happened! You know, the Lord did something. No, he didn't. I've seen more excitement than that at a basketball game. And whoever said that that's a sign of the power of God? But folks, they count that stuff. That, that, that's what they want to see, and it's ridiculous. This is just tempting God. All, everybody's just still begging for signs. Why would we be begging for signs? Why do Folks, I, I get wanting to see miracles. I'd like to see a miracle. I'd like to see Jesus walk on water. I'd like to see the Red Sea parted. But why is it that we have to see those things? Don't we have these stories written in the Bible for us? Don't we believe this Bible that we have is the inspired word of God? Don't we claim to know that we're going to heaven because the Bible of what the Bible says and what the Bible tells us? We claim we, claim we believe these things, yet we still sit here like Jesus needs to come back and do some more signs to get us to do anything. That is a pathetic attitude, and we've got we've just got to get over that. No more just sitting around waiting for Jesus to come and do something again that he's already done, that's already been recorded for us and miraculously preserved so we can go and we can read these things and get motivated by these things. You know what we just need to do? We need to get busy doing what he told us to do. We need to get out there. We need to start telling, spreading the gospel. We need to start being obedient to the things that he's commanded us to do in the scriptures. We don't need a show. We don't need a spectacle. And listen, if you want to go to church that's got the show, that's got the, the miracles and all that stuff, there's some good charismatic churches around here. You can go. They're good at getting the people stirred up sometime. I know where there's a church in town. They've got the typical Pentecostal setup that's pretty similar to this, except 
they got the, the front pew is a lot farther back. Whenever you see that church that's got a whole lot of space between the front row and the platform, there's a good sign that that's a holy roller church. And they do that so people have room to get up and dance when they get filled with the Spirit. And you say, I've never seen that before. That's what we have YouTube for. I, I can I can point you to some of those things. And I, I ran I ran into a bunch of these folks one time, and they looked like Baptists. They looked like us. And then I found out where they went to church, and I was looking up their church, and I saw, and I was like, oh, I know what those are. <laughs> and then especially when I saw the audit before I even saw the doctrinal statement or anything, when I saw a picture of the auditorium, and I saw the just unnatural amount of space between the platform and the front row, I was like. Holy Roller Church. They they do the dancing and stuff there, and sure enough, that is, it is a fact that they uh, they do that. I saw some pictures uh, that that had been posted where they were getting it on, whatever you want to call it, you know, where it was happening. The glory glory spout was going or whatever. You know, you can go to one of those churches, but you know, Jesus, if, if if that's what you want to demand, because that's a, that's a wicked, you're a wicked person if that's what you want. It's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. Jesus did these things for us. We believe he did these things. We don't have to see that stuff. We're just going to do what we're supposed to do here and just pray that God helps us and God gives us opportunity. And so enough ranting about that. But uh, but anyway, so for now, anyway, because there's more on this. Right? There is kind of a theme in this chapter we're going to see. So in verse 14, it says, Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Is it because we have no bread? Now, think about this. They just saw a miracle again for the second time where a multitude gets fed, and they've only got one loaf of bread, and they're having an argument about it. What are we going to do? Who forgot the bread? We've only got one loaf and we've got this trip in the boat we're going to take. I mean, folks, again, who cares about the debate about whether or not Judas got any saved? How did these guys get anybody saved? How did any of these disciples? They have no faith. But yeah, and they're, they're arguing about this. They should have known, hey, one's enough. In fact, I would think at this point they would say they would have the faith to say, you know what? Zero's enough. We've got Jesus here with us. He can take care, he can take care of this. But no, they're having an argument amongst themselves. And Jesus makes a statement, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the and of the leaven of Herod. And they reason among themselves, saying, This is because we have no bread. And when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason ye because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet. Neither understand, have ye your heart yet hardened? Having eyes, see ye not, and having ears, hear ye not? And do ye not remember, when I break the five loaves among the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? They say unto him, twelve. And when the seven among four thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said, seven. Uh, and he said unto them, how is it that ye do not understand so Jesus, he's one thing that would always mar, often cause Jesus to marvel is people's unbelief. And this is, folks, this is unbelief on an astounding level. And I'm, I'm thinking about just starting to just teach none of them were saved. <laughs> and, I, and I don't believe that. But at the same time, I think when you look at Mark chapter 8, if that was the only chapter we looked at, we could make a pretty good argument. 
<laughs> and I've heard, I've heard some Ruckmanites and stuff teach that they weren't really saved or they were kind of saved, but they had to get resaved afterwards. Man, there was something wrong with these guys' salvation. They had hardly any faith. It really is, it really is frustrating. And I don't pretend to understand all that was going on here, but it is, it is, a, it's an astounding thing. And maybe what it does do is it proves too that you don't even have to have a whole lot of faith to get saved. I mean, it just takes literally accepting a free gift. It doesn't take a faith that's as great as Abraham's faith that he showed and some of the greats that we've seen in the Bible. I mean, just a little bit of, I don't know, that person that just believed you when you came and talked to them at your house, but they never really changed their life. I don't know that they really got it. Well, are you sure those disciples who watched Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle and still had a hard heart, do you believe those people were saved? I mean, they got way more than the people that we're talking to. I don't know. I, so, you know, it, it's, it's amazing, saved people, just how capable they are of just being pathetic. And it, it, it is an amazing thing. But let me ask you, so here's another question. This is something I'm not 100% sure I'm right on this. But what was the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod? The leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Because obviously the Pharisees had a lot of issues. The Pharisees had a lot of false doctrine. But Jesus here, after this, you know, uh, miracle of the feeding of the five or 4,000 and all that, the disciples are having an argument about not having or who's supposed to bring the bread. What are we going to do? Jesus makes that statement of beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, I think most people would agree that that has some kind of reference to a false doctrine. But what exactly? Because we're talking about Herod, too. And this is just my opinion. Based on what we've been seeing throughout this chapter and based on something very specific that we see with Herod, not in the book of Mark, but in Luke chapter 23. I could be wrong on this, but it says in Luke 23, verse 8, And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season. Sounds like Herod loved the Lord and, you know, had a good attitude towards Jesus. Why? Because he had heard many things of him, and he had hoped to see some miracle done by him. He's like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I want to see a show. I want to see a spectacle. You know what he is? He's like the Jews who's requiring a sign. And so Jesus comes, and y'all, and we looked at this a week or so ago. Remember, he came to, when Jesus was there, Jesus wouldn't even talk to Herod. Jesus wouldn't even say a word to him. Why? Because I, I do believe that Herod had already been given over to a reprobate mind, and Jesus was done with him, and there was no reason to even talk to him. Jesus just ignored him and was silenced. And so the only thing that would make sense to me with this leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod is this idea that you have to have a sign to believe something. That's just, that's my opinion on that. There could be more to it than that. But that's what we're seeing here are people who just don't have any faith, who don't have any belief. People who are like demanding signs and want to see something really cool in order to believe Christ. And then you have the disciples who've seen one amazing thing after another, and yet their hearts are still hard and they still don't believe. And this attitude that I'll believe if I see a sign, let me tell you, it's a lie. And all these people out there, these atheists, I'll believe God if I see him. That's a lie. They hate God. That's why they're atheists. If I, I'm not going to believe in the miracles, I've got to see the evidence. I got to have the facts right there in front of me. Well, let me tell you, the disciples, they had the facts right there in front of them. They saw the loaves. They saw the fish. 
They saw it multiplied. They saw Jesus walk on water. They saw him heal people. They saw him raise people from the dead. They saw all these things, yet they still had a hardened heart. And this attitude, I don't, I don't have to believe. I'm not required to believe until I see something. You know what? That is a lie. That's an absolute lie. And so that, in my opinion, I think that's what Jesus was dealing with uh, when he said that. So look at verse 22, and it says, And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. And after that, after that he put his hands upon his eyes, and made him look up, and he was restored, and saw every man clearly and he went away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. Now, this is interesting too, and I don't pretend to understand all this either. But Jesus, you know, it took two times to get this guy healed. And, you know, Mark, when he's writing this here, he's just laying out the facts of what happened. He doesn't necessarily explain it. You know, one thing we notice with Jesus, every time he would heal somebody, even when it was the same type of thing, he didn't always use the same method, did he? And I think one of the reasons Jesus didn't always use the same method to heal people is because then we would make it all about the method instead of about the man. You know, it was really about Jesus Christ. If Jesus was always smacking people in the forehead, then everybody's just going to go smacking people in the forehead and just trying to imitate it that way. But Jesus always did things in a different way. And, I, and you know, there could be some deep reasons to that. You know, I don't know. I think it ultimately it's meant to just keep the focus on him. These miracles were not about any procedure any method it was just about who was doing it it was about jesus christ it was about a fact that there were people there who believed and so in my opinion you know i think the reason it probably took two tries is i think this guy was probably struggling with faith we just kind of see a theme in this chapter of people struggling with faith and not having faith and so it's like this guy's got a little bit of faith and jesus touches him and he's able to see men as trees so he's seeing something He's just, he's just not seeing things right. And I don't know what that even means, seeing men as trees walking. But at the same time, maybe just that improvement caused him all of a sudden to have the faith he needed for Jesus to get the job done. I, I don't know. You know, that's one of those things that, um, you know, we can all talk about and speculate on. But um, I think most people usually would, their guess, and it's just a guess. I don't think anybody really knows for sure. I think most people's guess is the guy just didn't have very much faith. And so it took a couple of tries. But it says in verse 27, And Jesus went out and his disciples into the town of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ, and he charged them that they should tell no man of him. Now, I think, you know, this is, again, another example where we see Jesus telling his disciples not to tell everyone something that it seems everyone needs to know. Don't people need to know that Jesus is the Christ? Don't people need to know that Jesus is the Messiah? So why did Jesus specifically tell them this here remember jesus had a special gift that you and i do not have jesus could look at a multitude and know their hearts 
He could look at any individual, know their heart, and even a multitude and know their hearts. You and I can't do that. Okay? We don't have that ability. So when, you know, our method of doing anything is we just shout it from the housetops. You know, our method of getting the word out, uh, our strategy is just say it as loud as you can to as many people as you can. Because we don't have the ability to uh, go any deeper. We can't see people's hearts like Jesus could. But I believe probably one of the reasons Jesus told them this is so the multitudes wouldn't get out of control. If all of a sudden they were to go around announcing the Messiah is here, here's what I think would have happened. Because the people of Israel, they wanted a Messiah or they wanted a deliverer. But the Messiah or the deliverer that they had in their mind and in their head was one who was going to deliver them from the Romans. It was one that was going to, you know, cause them to possess the kingdom and rule the earth. And that's, you know, somebody who would feed them and lead them into prosperity. That's what they were looking for. That, so saying the, Jesus is the Messiah to those, to the people during that time, it would have got them all excited, but it would have got them excited for the wrong reasons. Remember, Jesus is trying to get across spiritual truths. Jesus is trying to get people to have faith. I mean, just imagine how it would be in this country right now if some guy came along and just started talking a real good game about being a constitutionalist and pro-Second Amendment and we're going to overthrow the government and, you know, we're going to have 1776 round two. I mean, if the right guy came along, some of us, we'd get pretty excited about that pretty quick, wouldn't we? You know, because there's always a group, you know, waiting for the revolution. You know, they're waiting for that military leader so we can take care of these people in Washington, D.C. that are ruining our country so we can get our nation back. Yeah, I'm ready to fight, right? Isn't that, isn't that kind of how we are with these things? And let me tell you, there was a bunch of people in Israel like that during that time that were ready to fight, that wanted those Romans gone. They wanted to possess the land. They wanted the kingdom. They wanted, they wanted the freedom. They wanted the prosperity. And in their minds, that's what Messiah meant to them. But one thing that these people miss is the fact that they weren't worthy of a Messiah. These people needed a major, major cleansing. One that their Levitical priests were not capable of giving them. They needed a cleansing that only a spotless lamb could give. And that lamb had to be Jesus Christ. That is not what these people wanted, but that is exactly what they needed. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. And so even though it was a fact that Jesus was the Christ, I do believe in saying that these people, and Jesus knowing their hearts, knew they would all get the wrong idea and all it's going to do, it's going to cause a big commotion, it's going to cause a revolution, and that wasn't what he was there to do. He wasn't there to start the revolution. He was there to get some people saved. And so even though it was a fact he was the Messiah, he said, don't tell anyone of, of him. So I think that, I think that, so I, I do believe that's kind of what that method was. And so verse 31 says, and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things. Here's what he's getting ready to do now. Cause even his disciples probably had the wrong idea. In fact, they did have the wrong idea of what the Messiah was. And so Jesus is now teaching them. This is why I'm here. Okay. I'm not here to take care of the Romans right now. I'm not here 
to do all these things that you all are waiting for. I'm not here to do all these things that the multitudes are wanting me to do. That's not what I'm here right now. I'm not here to dethrone Herod. That's not why I'm here. And he's telling them why he's here. He said, I'm here. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. So there's no doubt they didn't understand what he was here for yet. Because when Jesus tells him, Peter, who had just announced he was the Christ, rebukes Jesus. Hey, this isn't what we signed up for. I'm not going to let you do this. I'm not going to let them kill you. It shows This shows just how hard their hearts still were in many areas because even after the resurrection, they still didn't believe this saying until they saw him. Jesus flat out told them, I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. Peter rebukes Jesus. And look at what it says in verse 33. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Now, I think Peter, you'd think Peter would remember this. Remember when Jesus called me Satan? You know the other disciples remember that. Yeah, that's a pretty notable event. All right, we all had that time in our life where we got that major chewing from our parents that we just never forgot, you know. Gave us PTSD and all these issues that we have today as a result of it. Well, imagine Jesus calling you Satan. That, that, that's a pretty memorable moment there. Why did he call him Satan? Because Peter didn't like it that Jesus said, I'm going to die, and three days later I'm going to rise from the dead. But yet, they forgot it. You know why? Because their hearts were hardened. It's, it's just, it is. It's just an amazing thing. How were any of these guys saved? It really is astounding. But this is just more evidence that the disciples, they also had the wrong idea about the Messiah. They did not like this plan. But, you know, we, you and I, we understand exactly how necessary that plan was. We all get it. Man, we're, we're all, we thank God that he went to the cross. We sing about the death of Christ. We look at Peter here rebuking Jesus and we're like, what is wrong with that man? We'd all be in hell if Jesus didn't die. For our sins on that cross. And yet, you know, but we get that. They didn't get that yet. Why? Because their hearts were hardened. But, you know, this is a great verse, too, that you can go to for the Catholics who want to overemphasize Peter's you know, role in the church because it doesn't record it in this account here, but it's for, uh, it was the same time when Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And there's a lot of different theories on, on what that means there. At the end of the day, um, I don't care if Jesus said, Peter, you're a rock I'm going to build my church on. Okay. And don't go to the magic verse. Oh, Jesus is the only rock. No, no other foundation can any man lay than that, which is Christ. Okay. The Bible specifically tells us in Ephesians. Okay. These things are analogies. They're not literal. And it's stated in Ephesians chapter two that, uh, you know, we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Okay. So if we talk about our foundation being the apostles, we're not, you're not saying anything bad and idolatrous. That's just Bible. Okay. And people, they always just want to go ultra literal on these things, making magic verses. I don't have time to go into some of the examples of that, but it just, I just want to beat my head against the wall when I hear people just butchering passages to try to not, you know, um, you know, conflict 
with a stupid interpretation of a figurative verse. That always just blows my mind. But either way, even though Peter is a part of that foundation, okay, and the Catholics want to go overboard and declare him the first pope, which is as dumb, either way, it says something, though, that immediately after that, Jesus called Peter Satan. That's about as big of an insult as you can get. They call somebody Satan, but that's what Jesus called Peter there. Now, why was he doing that? Because he is, he's getting in the way. He's trying to stop Jesus from doing what he needs to do. He's hindering him. And um, in his rebuke, Jesus had to do this. This was necessary. And so it says in verse uh, 34, says, And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So now what does that exactly mean? Because people use this verse to teach that you can lose your salvation. And, you know, obviously that is a ridiculous interpretation. But I like what it says in Matthew 10, 32. It says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father, which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. Now, there's two ways you can look at this passage, or you can even maybe just two possible explanations, all right? And neither of them are that we could lose our salvation. But one is, and I've explained it this way before, when we put distance between us and God, he's going to put distance between us and him. God needs us as Christians today to be a light to the world. God needs us today to be a witness. And when we get embarrassed by our Christianity, when we try to hide our light under a bushel, when God needs us, you know, proclaiming his word, and his message, when we need him, you know what? God's not going to be there either. Sometimes we need God to show himself strong. When we've got those that are out there calling us all these terrible names, saying we're false prophets and a cult and all these things, you know what I want in that situation? I want God to come forward and show himself strong in our church. I want God to do amazing things. I want God to use us to show these people that we are one of his. I want God to confess me, you could say. But another thing you could do too as you could even say this as a people too, he's talking to Israel here and he's saying um, that if you uh, lost the spot in verse uh, 38, whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. And they were, they were a wicked and adulterous generation. They were the ones that were seeking after a sign of him shall the son of man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his father with his holy angels. Now, let me ask you, it's just been confessed that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The Messiah came to Israel, didn't he? Or didn't he? He came, he came to Israel. But let me ask you, is Jesus going to claim Israel, the physical people, when he returns? No, he's not. You know what he's going to do? He's going to say, bring those before me that would not that I should reign over them and slay them before me. He's not going to, he's not going to claim these people. Bill Grady's wrong. He's not just going to save them all. 
when he comes back. This wicked and adulterous generation that, that would not confess him, that were ashamed of him, he is not going to claim these people. They are going to be left, they are going to be left behind and they are going to be judged. There's, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, many people, they're, they're embarrassed by just what the word of God says. You know, and if that's how you are, God's going to be embarrassed by you. There's a lot of people that are ashamed. There are literally a lot of people today. They're embarrassed by things that the Bible says. They're embarrassed by Leviticus 2013. They're embarrassed about Romans 1. They're embarrassed about all the stuff of the death penalty. And they just, they're always trying to find ways to just explain around it, talking about how, oh, you know, that was the Old Testament God. He's a lot different now. Now, you haven't read the book of Revelation. He hasn't changed at all. You know what's you know what's going well. I don't see him doing any of this stuff right now. I know, and that's scary. You know why? Because he's saving up. He's saving up. The biggest bloodiest days are ahead of us, and I and not bigger than bloody as far as just wars with people. I'm talking about God shedding blood. The biggest days are ahead of us with Jesus Christ Himself coming to this earth to to doing these things, and people are embarrassed by it. And you know what? If you're going to be embarrassed by God, he's going to be embarrassed by you, and he's not going to show himself strong in your life. If you're not there when God needs you, he's not going to be there when you need him. In other words, you know, you're still going to have your salvation, but he's not going to show himself strong in your life. He's not going to give you, he's not going to give you those miracles when you need him. He's not going to give that evidence to everyone else that you're the good guy. And you know what? I do, I thank God for all the, you know, just, Physical blessings. I'm talking about, and I'm not talking about just like the building and stuff, but just even the people and the works that we've been able to do here. You know what it's done? It's helping more and more prove to a lot of people out there who've said a lot of things about us that we're legit. You know, God is, I believe, you know, showing that he has put his stamp of approval on this place. And I think as time goes on, if we will continue to not be ashamed of him, if we don't get embarrassed by what the Bible says and we just keep preaching the whole thing, even though it's not popular, I believe God is not going to be embarrassed of us. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to, he's going to show everyone that we belong to him. He's going to show everyone that we're his. And the one thing that draws God to man is faith. And one thing that pushes God away is the lack of it. And here in this chapter, we see a town that literally made Jesus turn around and leave just because they didn't have faith. We should never make that same mistake again. I, I just I can't even imagine. You got to wonder how many sick people there were, people who had great needs. But Jesus Christ Himself shows up, and just as He gets off the boat, show us a miracle. He's like, I'm out of here. I'm going. I'm going somewhere else, man. They missed out big time. And the disciples, man, the you know this the the hardened heart is going to get you in so much trouble. You're going to miss out on so many blessings. You're going to miss out on so many miracles if you have that hardened heart. What you just need to do is just believe God. And who cares if we see anything or not? You know what? We've got a Bible here that's full of miracles. You need to see a miracle? Just go read your Bible. That's the, that's the only miracle you should need. And if you do that, you know what? I believe God will be pleased, and you might get to see a miracle. Well, I sure hope so. Shut up. You just missed the whole point of the message. You missed the whole point of the message. If that's your attitude right now, we don't do these things for the miracles. Don't go tempting God. 
say, you know what? Thank you, God, for showing me that miracle in your word. You know what? I'm going to do what you told me to do. Because you proved that it was your will through your word. That, this, this book right here is a miracle all by itself. And unfortunately, we just get over it. We get over it just like they got over, the children of Israel got over crossing the Red Sea. The disciples seen all the miracles they did. Man, we should know better than that. Let's, let's learn from their mistakes and let's get this right. Okay. Let's get this right and just trust God. So let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the miracles that we're able to see in your word. Thank you for the miracles that we've all seen in our life just by you giving us the gift of salvation. And Lord, I pray you'll help us to not be a wicked and adulterous church that's just always begging for signs and begging for some kind of miracles and demanding these things for us to just be obedient. Lord, help us be obedient because you've already proved yourself uh, in your word. And I, I pray, Lord, that you'll uh, just help us do great works. Help us not to be ashamed of you, but Lord, help us to be proud of you and your word and what it says. And I pray, Lord, you'll just show yourself strong uh, in our lives and in this church. In your name we pray. Amen.